0: Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Pray with me. Great are you and greatly to be praised. For you are the king of all the earth. You reign over the nations. You sit on your holy throne, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. You are our God forever and ever. You will guide us all our days. And because of that, we can come to you and we can ask for help, and there are members of our church that need your help today. I want to pray especially for Daryl Pocock, because he's very, very, very sick. God, would you heal him? Would you bring him? Would you help him to turn a corner? We know that you can, so we ask that you will. But if not, would you be with Glenna especially and the girls? Would you keep her faith strong? I've been so encouraged by her love for you and her trust in your steadfast hand, and would you be with them, even right now, be with them in a special way this morning? I also pray for Dinah Gudding and that she would also make a turn for the better. God, would you heal her? Would she have a good morning and be able to hold her oxygen on her own? We're thankful that you brought healing to so many Uh, in this season through our church, and we just ask for more. We also want to celebrate the the gift of new life. Thank you for the birth of Abby White, and thank you that Ashley's doing well. Thank you for a smooth transition so far, and we pray that you would continue to give the Whites grace as they transition, and uh, we pray for Abby's little heart, that she would be nurtured in the fear and admission of you, and uh, that you would open her heart to heed the things that Stephen and Ashley will lavish her with, that she would love your gospel God, would pray for opportunities to share the good news with our friends and family. We all want to have opportunities, and so we just ask for easy ones. Would you give us easy opportunities? Would you burden our hearts with people that we know that we know don't know you? And would you give us a, a love and a whiz, winsomeness and a confidence in the power of your word to do what only you can do, and that is raise the dead to life? God, if we turn to your word to some unpopular verses. Would you give us receptive hearts? We're dealing with matters that are very clear and very important, but often ignored. And so we ask that we wouldn't be those who do that, those who would treat your word in a trivial way, but that we would seek to submit to it. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. We pray this through your son, our king, who lives and reigns with you and the spirit, one God. Amen. You know, as Christians, especially 2,000 years into church history, we can be thankful for the ways that various Christian traditions and various denominations have contributed to the work of the kingdom over time. You know, you think of Methodists and historically their social conscience and think about Presbyterians and historically their very careful thinking. Think about Pentecostals and their passion for the things of God. The chief contribution by Baptists besides epic potlucks, (laughs) is careful thinking about the church. We take the doctrine of the local church, what's known as ecclesiology, very seriously, at least historically. Sadly, nowadays, not so much due to pragmatism, this idea that we should do whatever works, a desire for large numbers in church world. We often call them the killer bees that church leaders often are so consumed with. That is budget, budget, Buildings and butts in the seats, just worrying for more and more numbers. A lack of conviction sometimes, sometimes it's a lack of courage. Because of that, meaningful membership in church discipline is very rare today. Probably what I'm going to unpack to you today is probably new to most of you, and that's unfortunate. I often teach on this passage and on church membership and church discipline in our membership class. And I often ask, hey, have you ever been in a church that did this stuff? And it's so rare. It's less than 1% at best. But here at Southside, we're all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And maybe you're here and you don't know the gospel. The gospel is simply that God created us. He's our creator. He created us good. But it didn't take long for us to turn to ourselves and decide, you know what? We know better. And so we've sinned. And because of Adam's sin, all of us are born in sin. But the good news of grace is that God didn't leave us to ourselves. He sent his son to die in our place. He bore the penalty that we deserve. That's what we're all about here That's the gospel. It's the good news. So that if we trust in Christ, our sins are forgiven. It's what we've been singing about. So we have a right standing with God and now we're called to follow him. And this gospel, this message, this good news, it produces a people. It births a people, a church. And so that's what we're talking about for the next six weeks. We normally just walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, book by book, but we're doing a sort of a topical, expositional, positional series on membership matters. And it's one of the rare series where you really need to hear the whole thing. I'm making a case and I need more than one week. And so let me just summarize where we've been. In week one, we saw the centrality of the church. Ephesians 3, 9 to 11 says that God's eternal purpose, his purpose for the ages was that through the church, us, he would display his wisdom and his power and his glory to the watching world. The church is the bride. Of Christ, It's the apple of God's eye, therefore the local church ought to be the apple of ours as well. This early church father named Cyprian, he put it this way, way back in the 200s, he said, he who hath not the church for his mother hath not God for his father. The church has to be central. So we looked at that, we looked at the nature of the church, and we saw from Jeremiah 31 that the church is the community of the new covenant, and it's to consist of believers and believers only. It's called a regenerate church membership. So yes, unbelievers are welcome here. We want unbelievers here hearing the word, hearing the gospel, but they can't join the church until they believe that gospel, until they've been born again, until they've been regenerated. People who have saving faith. And then last week, we looked at church leadership, church government. And saw that God's will clearly taught in scripture is that his local churches be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified male elders. And we kind of tipped our hat at what I called elder-led congregationalism. And that's where we're going to look this week. Look, we need to have a regenerate church membership. Well, how do we do that? This week, we'll see through meaningful membership. Next week, we'll see through church discipline. The next week, we'll see through building a culture of discipleship in the local church, and then the last week, we'll tie it all together. Elder-led congregationalism is Jesus' discipleship program for his church. So membership and discipline are the front door and the back door of the church. And the main thing I want you to take away from our passage this morning is that the Lord Jesus Christ has given the assembled congregation the keys of the kingdom And we are called to exercise them through church membership and church discipline. So if you've got a Bible, let's open up to the Gospel of Matthew and ask what are the keys and then what are they for? We're going to be in Matthew 16. We're in the Gospel of Matthew right now, but it was going to be a little while before we got to chapter 16. So we'll hit it now and then we'll hit it again in about nine or 10 years. Page 771 if you're using one of our Bibles in front of you in the chair. What is your job as a church? It's to exercise the keys of the kingdom. What are those keys? Well, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. Now, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So what's going on here? Peter answers correctly that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, you know what? It actually wasn't you, Peter. This was revealed to you by the Father. And then in response, Jesus says, he's going to build his church on the rock. And if you know anything about this passage or church history, there's been a lot of debate, especially between Catholics and Protestants on this verse. What is the rock? And historically, Catholics have said this is one of their proof texts for the papacy, for the popes. They say it's Peter, and it's every, every pope, every bishop in Rome that followed him. And so a lot of Protestants have probably overreacted and said, no, 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 the rock's not Peter. It's his confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, I actually think it's a bit of both. I do think it actually is Peter because there's a wordplay here in the original. So Jesus says, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. But that doesn't mean Peter was the first pope. There's nothing in these verses or anywhere else about apostolic succession or what they call Petrine infallibility. All that's got to be read into the passage, not drawn from it. So Peter was the rock, right? Just think about the book of Acts. If you know the book of Acts, Peter was clearly at the forefront of the early church. He was a clear leader, hugely important. And so while some say the rock is that confession that Jesus is the Messiah, and others say the rock is Peter, I think it's both. Peter is the rock precisely because of his confession that Jesus is the Messiah. They can't be separated. The confessor and the confession go together. And so Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, not on people only and not on truths only, but on the right people who have the right truths on a who and a what on a confessor and a confession. So Jesus is going to build his church on Peter and Peter's confession. And Peter, though, he's just a representative of the apostles and the prophets Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And when Jesus says, who do you say that I am, it's actually plural. We in Texas have a word for that, right? Jesus says, who do y'all say that I am? Speaking to Peter, but he's speaking to Peter as a representative of all the apostles and that Peter answers on behalf of all of them. Jesus says he'll build his church on Peter who confesses rightly and the apostles and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This passage, I think, is often missed, but we need to stop and ask, what are gates for? Are gates offensive or defensive? Gates are defensive, aren't they? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is the one charging the gates, not the one that's running away. The church is on the advance, not on the retreat. That's what we're called to do, right? This is This is why C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said Christianity is a fighting religion. We're active. Remember Genesis 1? What's the fundamental calling of humanity? Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, take ground, make babies, make culture subdue our various domains under the rule of God. And here we are in the new covenant. The church is the new humanity called to bring the rule of God to bear everywhere we are, right? We've seen that in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom is coming. And so now we're active and we're active as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the church is to submit to the rule of Christ and we're to help others do the same. It's really what we're about here. Submit to the rule of Christ and help others submit to the rule of Christ. Help move people wherever they are to where Jesus wants them. Where does Jesus want them? Submitting every little area of their lives to his gracious rule and seeking to extend that rule. That's what the Great Commission is. Jesus has all authority. Therefore, make disciples. Teach them to obey all that King Jesus commanded. And Jesus promises victory here. The church will not be destroyed. The church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. Hell is cannot resist the church's advances. So let's be at it. Look back at verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What are these keys of the kingdom? Well, very clearly right here, they're the power to bind and loose. And this metaphor of binding and loosing, it was very common. It was used in ancient Judaism for various things. One of the ways it was often used was for interpreting the law, interpreting the Torah, and for making decisions. And so they would study a matter, and they would either bind it, restrict it, or they would loose it, liberate it. And so the keys of the kingdom represent the apostle's ability to determine what is and what is not permitted. The power to make and enforce binding decisions. These keys are authoritative decisions concerning what's prohibited and what's permitted to open and to close. This is what keys do, right? And Jesus says, heaven will agree with the binding and the loosing. And these keys, they're giving first to Peter as a representative of the apostles, but they're just representatives really of the church at large. And notice Jesus is going to hand these keys to the gathered congregation. Congregationalism. So flip a page over to Matthew chapter 18. Look at verse 15, our passage that was read earlier. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he re- refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, sound familiar? shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. One of the most famous passages about church discipline and Jesus lays out a very clear process for us. If a person sins, you first go to them privately, Jesus says, and point out his fault. Now, this is contrary to where we are in American culture, isn't it? Go and show them their fault. The world says, no, you can't do that. That's not loving. That'd be hate speech. That's judgmental. Didn't Jesus say, judge not? Well, he did. In fact, let's just go back, Keeping keeping Matthew there. Flip back to Matthew chapter 7. This passage is often misused. <coughs> Jesus commands us to go and show him his fault when a person sins. And yes, he says, don't judge, but he actually says more than that. And he says, actually, you are to judge. You're just going to judge in a certain way. Look at Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And if with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So notice, it's not that Jesus says, never judge, never pull the speck out. He just says, first, take the log out of your own, judge yourself first, and then you can go and judge Another brother or sister. We're to check our own faults first, but then we're commanded in the church to point out the fault of others when it happens. In other words, to help each other follow the Lord. Always with grace, always with humility. But we are responsible to one another in the local church. Listen to the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, which will be our main passage for next week. Paul says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. Now, this judging isn't some like standing over our brothers and sisters and pointing out the wrong. It's an idea of helping one another. We all can walk outside of the way of Christ. And we all need someone at times to bring us back, to point us out, to have a loving word of, you know what, you ought not to do that. You know what, that doesn't honor the Lord. You know what, have you considered this? This is what we're talking about, helping one another follow Jesus. And Paul says, don't worry about those outside. You worry about those inside. Listen to the way Galatians 6.1 says, Commands us, brothers, if anyone is caught, and we've all been there, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So here again, we're called to restore each other when each other when we get caught in sin. Restore one another with a spirit of gentleness. Staying alert as we do, because we're no better. We could fall into the same sin. Jesus cares about holiness and unity in his church. He knows sin's gonna happen. He knows conflict's gonna happen, but he cares about conflict resolution. He cares about reconciliation. He cares about it deeply. In fact, if you're still over there, look at Matthew chapter five, verse 23, right here in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you were to ask, what do you think Jesus are some of the most important things, I think we'd have a list that would, corporate worship would be right up there. It may be number one, maybe number two, three, four. It'd be top four. What's most important to Jesus? Corporate worship. Notice what he says here in chapter five, verse 23. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar in the old covenant, this would have been corporate worship at the temple. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gifts. Astounding. Jesus says, you know what's even more important than corporate worship? Reconciliation and restoration in the local church. If you're there about to worship corporately and you realize someone else has something against you, what do you do? You stop corporate worship and you go make it right. First, go, Jesus says. Back to Matthew 18. Look again at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go. It's the same commands. And tell him his faults. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he listens, you've won him over. You've helped them follow the Lord. Praise God. Isn't the way James puts it in chapter 5? He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God has commissioned us to be his agents of rescue. Stuff's all over the Bible. Rarely practiced today. But Jesus says if he doesn't listen, he gives a second step. What does he say? Take two, one or two witnesses with you, which was an ancient Jewish courtroom principle gleaned from Deuteronomy 19. It's always good to have other people in the room. But notice Jesus wants to keep this circle as small as possible for as long as possible. So first, it's just you and the offender. If he doesn't listen, bring a couple more. These witnesses will see it. They'll see the way the person's confronted, and they'll see either the repentance and get to celebrate, or they'll see the rejection and the failure to repent. And these witnesses, ideally, are not just any random members of the church, but people that are close to the person, people who know their situation. This is weighty. This is, this is a tense and sensitive situation. And so Jesus here, he wants us to be careful and cautious, patient, and measured, and notice here, Jesus is talking to every Christian. He's talking to all the disciples here in Matthew 18. Elders aren't mentioned here, leaders aren't mentioned here, staff is not mentioned here. He's not merely speaking to church leaders, that Jesus expects that this will be ordinary Christians. Ordinary members, and clearly Jesus is referring to Christians in the same local church, members of the same community where people know one another and pray for one another and have committed to one another. And what's the goal? It's always repentance, reconciliation, restoration as quickly as possible. But that doesn't always happen. So Jesus says if he still refuses to listen, still refuses to repent, he gives this third step, tell it to the church. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The New Living Translation says, take your case to the church. So notice this. When a member of the church, a member of the New Covenant community is unrepentant, they're in outward, ongoing sin. Jesus, our King, the Lord of the world, commands us, tell the church. Tell the assembly. You know, Jesus actually didn't say a lot about the church. In fact, did you know that in all four Gospels, he only uses this word church, ecclesia, two times. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Therefore, this is the most important thing our Lord ever said about the church. And yet this teaching is routinely ignored. It's saddening. It's frankly shocking how rare this is actually practiced, even though here it is crystal clear. Remember what the church is, right? The church, it just means assembly. The word was often used in non-religious contexts. It was used in all kinds of assemblies. It's the gathering. It's the assembled congregation. The basic definition of the word church is a gathering of people for a particular purpose. And that gathering important, right? It's right there in verse 20. It's what he says, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among them. This is, this is a church discipline context that Jesus promises his presence for. And again, notice just what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say When there's an unrepentant person, an ongoing, outward, serious sin, he doesn't say, tell their family. He doesn't say, tell their small group. He doesn't say, tell the staff. He doesn't say, tell the elders. What does Jesus command? Tell the church. Tell the assembled congregation. Friends, this is not optional teaching by Jesus. This is not a suggestion. We want to obey Jesus. We want to follow the king of the world. We want to submit to the Lord of lords. He's the head of the church. He has the authority. And Jesus rules his church. And his holy scepter is his word. And so we want to submit our church life to the will of the king. So we need to be doing this. God is wiser than we are. Jesus says, tell the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, even to the gathered congregation, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? Well, what's a Gentile? A Gentile is just a, a pagan, a non-believer, one who's outside of the new covenant community. In other words, a non-Christian. What's a tax collector? Remember in this day, tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were the traitors. They traded on their people and then used them for their own selfish gain. What he means is let them be to you as an unbeliever. Of course, Jesus doesn't mean anytime someone sins, put them out, not at all. But when a person is in unrepentance, outward sin over a period of time and they will not listen, they will not repent, following this process Jesus lays out, eventually we must conclude that they're not a true Christian, that they're not regenerate. There's no fruit in their lives. In fact, there's the opposite of it. They're no longer even trying to follow Jesus. And remember, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the presence or absence of sin. All of us sin on a daily basis. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we hate our sin, and we seek to repent of it, and we listen to the prompting of the Spirit. Non-Christians don't. They don't care. So if a person has this pattern of willful sin over time and no repentance. Won't heed counsel from church members, from church leaders. Jesus says, tell the church and remove them from the fellowship. Treat them as an unbeliever. Disassociate from them. Listen to the way 2 Thessalonians 3 puts it. Again, this is on almost every book of the New Testament. Verse 6, and you know, what is, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. I got it up here. Now we command you, I think it's supposed to be first this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Keep away from them. Disassociate from them. Then in verses 14, 314, we see this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. And have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Or again, First Corinthians, that we'll see next week. Puts it this way. This is this is a pattern, a person that was in a pattern of this nasty sin would not repent. Let him who's done this be removed from among you, Corinthian congregation. So, of course, this doesn't mean that we're mean to these folks or harsh toward them. I mean, how do you treat your unbelieving neighbors? I hope you're not mean. I hope you're not harsh. But you don't treat them like everything's okay because it's not. You have an evangelistic posture towards them. And they're welcome to attend services. We want them under the word. But it does mean here very clearly that we treat them as an unbeliever. We remove them from among us. We, the old term is excommunicate them. We remove them from the membership role. We exclude them from the Lord's Supper. We'll focus again on all this next week, and please come tonight at 5 if this raises questions. We'd love for you to have clarity on all this. Listen to the way Jonathan Lehman writes it in a little book called Church Discipline. He says, formal church discipline is the appropriate course of action whenever a church member's failure to represent Jesus becomes so characteristic and habitual that the church no longer believes he or she is a Christian. The church must then remove its affirmation of a person's profession of faith. After an extended period of time and prayer and mourning, at some point, if they will not come back to the Lord, the church has to say, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. Remember week one, right? This is where this all ties together. The church is to be a regenerate community, a regenerate church membership believers only. And so how do we, we, we cannot keep those who do not follow Jesus in the church on the church membership roles. We're going to see next week, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The church must be f- pure. And friends, let me just point you back to these red letters. Jesus could not be more clear about our role here. And again, what's the goal? The goal is restoration. The goal is repentance. The goals reconciliation. The goal is salvation. Again, we'll see this next week. And notice this passage here in Matthew 18. It's sandwiched, I think, very intentionally by this goal. Notice if you look in your Bibles there, just look at verses 10 to 14. What do we have there? We have the parable of the lost sheep. You have this man who leaves the 99 to go to pursue the one straying sheep and rejoices when he finds it. Church discipline is a rescue operation. Listen to the heart of the Father in verse 14 there, Matthew 18. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In context, how does the Father pursue wandering sheep? It's the very next verse. Through you. Through the church. And then look on the other side. So we looked at verse 20. Look at verse 21. What do we have there? Verses 21 to 35, where Peter asked, how many times should I extend forgiveness? Jesus says, not seven, but 77 times. Repentance and restoration and forgiveness is always the goal of church discipline. And Jesus has given this to the congregation. Look again at chapter 16, verse 19. What he tells Peter as representative, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Flip back to chapter 18 and look at verse 18. Jesus now tells the church, that's what he just said, tell the church, verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So the keys of the kingdom that are given to the church, they refer to excluding and accepting confessors and confessions. It's discipline and doctrine. Jesus gave the church the keys of the kingdom to receive people into membership or exclude them from membership in the local church. Here's how one commentator put it. The gathered church is loosing and binding, forgiving and refusing to forgive, carries the very authority of God. Jesus has given this to the church. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He's saying to the church, church, if you follow my guidelines, you have my endorsement, you have my blessing. Even if the church only consists of two or three in the gathering, right? They've got to start somewhere. Jesus ties the assembled church's decision to heaven. He's saying that God has delegated his authority to the church on the matters of membership and discipline. This is why we take church membership so seriously. God has entrusted us with a job. They teach us that the local church is where believers are gathered in Jesus' name to make declarative statements on heaven's behalf. And his presence is here, especially among us, so that we can bind and loose with these keys. Let me just reiterate something that's missed in most churches today. Jesus says nothing about the leadership of the church in these verses. This isn't something that happens behind closed doors. This all happens in the assembled congregation, in members meetings. This is all about the local church. This is all about you. So let's tie this all together. What does this have to do with church membership? Well, I hope you're seeing everything. Jesus has entrusted the members of the local community with the keys of the kingdom. There are these instruments of authority to discern a what and a who, a confession and a confessor, propositions and people, what we believe and who we are. So the church holds the Jesus-delegated authority to admit and to remove. The keys are about entry and exclusion. I've been reading a lot of old Baptist history lately, and there was this guy named Benjamin Keach who in 1697 said this, the power of the keys, or to receive in and shut out of the congregation, is committed unto the church. I mentioned this may be new, it's probably new, it's usually a membership class, this is new to most people that come in, but what I want to keep reminding you, this ain't new. This is 1697 old. This is historic. Again, the last 70 years, churches have been anemic and weak and haven't followed the clear teaching of the Lord here. But this is just historic Baptist practice. I'll tell you, I'm just your great, great, great Baptist grandpa come back to bring back the old way, which is the biblical way. It's the Jesus way. The congregation is to exercise the keys with membership and discipline. To get really practical, that means that the power of the keys are exercised through our confession of faith and our membership directory. Jesus says, this is your role. To become a member is to be installed into an office, a job given by King Jesus to represent him. We have responsibilities and duties. We've been given the keys to guard his reputation by guarding the what and who of the gospel. Again, Jonathan Lehman writes this, it's the authority to pronounce heaven's judgment on the what and who of the gospel, confessions and confessors. More concretely, it's the authority to write and affirm statements of faith and to add or remove names in the church membership directory. So church membership means responsibility to one another, to know and guard the word to help one another follow Jesus. Becoming a member of a local church means committing to the spiritual health of the other members of the church. It's not a status. Membership's not a status like a country club. No, it's active like a job. We're, we want members that are active, not passive. To be a church member is to be an office holder with God-given responsibility. So one Baptist pastor says membership is a formal commitment to love and to be loved. By those Christians we live around, whom we regularly interact with, whom we desire to hold accountable, and to whom we are held accountable. Membership is way more important than we've let on in the American church in the 20th, 21st century. We've got a longer definition here that I share with our membership class. I want to share with you. Pastor in D.C., Baptist pastor named Mark Devers, written a really good book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And I want to read this to you. He says, church membership is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. By identifying ourselves with a particular church, we let the pastors and other members know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving, prayer, and service. We allow fellow believers to have greater expectations of us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of the local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ and serving with them, and we call for their commitment to serve and encourage us as well. Joining a church increases our sense of ownership of the work of the church, of its community, of its budget, of its goals. We move from being pampered consumers to becoming joyous proprietors. We stop arriving late and complaining that we don't get exactly what we want. Instead, we arrive early. We try to help others with what they need. We must begin to view membership less as a loose affiliation, useful only on occasion, and more as a regular responsibility becoming involved in one another's lives for the purposes of the gospel. Church membership is just biblical love. It's just committed love. It's really hard to genuinely love other believers without church membership. We can have this kind of romanticized, abstract. Yeah, I love the church. It's easy to do that. It's not so easy when the church has names and faces and problems and burdens to bear. But when you know them, you can commit yourself to them and they to you. And so membership means we covenant together with responsibility and love to help one another follow the Lord. It's a self-conscious commitment to a particular people. Church membership gives shape and appearance to our love. It's it's the ability to actually obey the 37 one another commandments were given in the New Testament. As a church here, one of our core values is we're in authentic community. We are in authentic community. And friends, there really is no authentic community without a specific commitment to specific people. A church that downplays formal commitment, and again, this is the vast majority of churches in our day. Church that downplays formal commitment will end up having shallow relationships. Because as the married people in this room know, love thrives on commitments. A church that just appeals to you as a consumer, you know, we're a church, we're a vendor of religious goods that's here to give you what you want and need. A church that appeals to you as a consumer will, surprise, surprise, be filled with consumers. And friends, nothing ruins authentic community like a bunch of self-centered, self-focused consumers. Consumers. It's not who we are. We're not consumers. We're not like consumers at a performance. No, to be a member is to be a cultivator of a community garden. We have a stake in this now. We're overseeing one another's discipleship. We're zealous about faithfully representing Jesus together. One author uses the example of a shareholder. What, what do you do when, they become, when someone becomes a shareholder? Well, they start paying attention, don't they? They get involved. They get an app. App, not an App. They download an app, start watching the stock, they start learning, they start attending shareholder meetings. They ask, How are we doing? What can we do to do better? So, what we're calling elder led congregationalism, it causes members to buy in with what the Lord's doing here. Here's how one pastor puts it. In fact, it's a quote from this book we want you to grab. Understanding the congregation's authority. And so when a person joins their church, he says something like this. Friend, by joining this church, you will become jointly responsible for whether or not this congregation continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel. That means you will become jointly responsible both for what this church teaches as well as whether or not its members' lives remain faithful. And one day you'll stand before God and give an account for how you used this authority. Will you sit back and stay anonymous, doing little more than passively showing up for 120 minutes on a Sunday? Or will you jump in with the hard and rewarding work of studying the gospel, building relationships, and making disciples? We need more hands for the harvest, so we hope you'll join us in that work. Southside, let's continue to grow and meaningful membership. Jesus has entrusted us with the keys of the kingdom. And so let's strive to be faithful as we exercise them. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word and its clarity. And as I sit here teaching words that are very unpopular in American culture, I'm thankful that you have built and are building a congregation that seeks to follow you and to follow your word. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's countercultural, thank you for the work that you're doing among this people. Thankful for so much responsibility and love that's already happened. And I pray that this teaching and as we move to have members' meetings and voting members in and probably on occasion having to vote members out, would you just build us up in love, strengthen our commitment to you, which shows itself practically by being strengthened to one another. So we want, we want to honor you. We want to follow you and we want to love one another effectively because as your son said, it's by our love for one another that the world will know that we are your disciples. And so we ask for your help to that end. Continue to build health in this place. Help us to continually submit our lives to you and your word and help others to do the same. For our joy, for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.